everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have the case of Ronnie Long, who was arrested in 1976 on trespass charges, charged and later convicted of rape, sentenced to 80 years in prison and has been in prison for more than 40 years despite evidence of an unfair trial and that he was wrongly convicted. We have previously covered this case on Everyday Injustice with Ashley Long, Ronnie's wife. Today we talk with Jamie Lau, Executive Director of Duke's Wrongful Conviction Clinic, who is Ronnie's attorney. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you for having me, David. So um, let's start with maybe telling us about the case for those who are not aware of uh, the facts of this case. So Ronnie was arrested in May 1976 for the alleged uh, sexual assault of a widowed woman in Concord, North Carolina. He was arrested approximately two weeks after the crime had occurred in April 1976. And he was arrested after the victim had identified him at a court appearance that he was making on a trespass charge for being in the neighborhood park that was adjacent to his home um, when he wasn't supposed to be there. Those trespassing charges were dismissed that day, but while he was in the courtroom, the victim identified him as her attacker um, in the attack that occurred two weeks prior. It's probably a question for your listeners why she was in the courtroom and had the opportunity to pick long from the uh, individuals in the courtroom that day. And that is a story that we're trying to unpack or that's never really been fully unpacked. Police had identified Long as a suspect about a week prior. Uh, they obviously had a photograph of Long. They had that photograph from the charge when he was picked up for trespassing at the park, and they could have showed her an array of photographs, as is typically the case, and as they did earlier on in their investigation of the attacker of the victim, whose name was Miss Boss. For whatever reason, they decided to bring her to a courtroom to see if she could pick out her attacker. They had met with her, told her that they thought the individual who attacked her may be in the courtroom 
and asked if she would be amenable to attending court and trying to identify her attacker from those present. Uh, she went to the courtroom, but of course she was nervous, wearing a disguise. She had a wig, red glasses on to conceal her appearance. She went with a neighbor, testified that while she was present in the courtroom, she was scared, believing that she may have been in the presence of her attacker. She was there for an hour and a half before identifying Long as her attacker. She testified that during that time, she was turning her head, scanning the courtroom, trying to identify the person who attacked her. And it was only when Long's case was called and he stood up and walked forward that she identified him. Um, she also testified significantly that she was the only one in the courtroom who looked remotely like um, her attacker at the time that she was in the courtroom, which is a real concern of ours because it appears that she was making a relative judgment of someone who looked close to the person she recalled, um, not necessarily identifying Long because he was, in fact, her attacker and because it ended her obviously very traumatizing experience being there in the first place. Lots of other concerns with respect to the identification. She had given a pre-identification description that didn't match Long. Uh, she had said that her attacker was a light-skinned or yellow black male. Uh, yellow was a common term in the South to call somebody high yellow, which mean they were a mixed race. Uh, Ronnie definitely wouldn't fit that bill. He is a dark-skinned black male. She never described facial hair um, on her attacker. Ronnie also had facial hair. So there's a lot of reasons to doubt the identification. Uh, in addition to those concerns, there's 30 years or now 40 years of research um, on the fallibility of wrongful or of identification. So given that uh, it's the only evidence against Long, we began working on this case to see what we could do so given the weakness in eyewitness identification evidence, um, that was all that was presented against Long. And eventually it was discovered that there was several other pieces of physical evidence that had been collected and tested um, that undermine the identification in this case. Um, and one of the challenges I think you guys have is, is that the victim in this case uh, is now deceased, correct? That's correct. So, so that will make uh, make for some challenges. I, I want to move ahead, and then we'll go back to some of this core evidence here. Um, and and one of the big uh, things that has happened in 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 the last few weeks is that originally, and I think this was in January or so. Uh, Ronnie was denied a new trial uh, by a panel of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, but now the full panel, or the full court, I guess, uh, has agreed to take it up. Uh, so what's kind of happening here? Yeah, that was a decision that we learned about last Monday. The case had been brought to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals following a magistrate and district court ruling um, granting the state of North Carolina's motion for summary judgment on the basis of the evidence that was concealed from Long 
was immaterial to the outcome of the case, basically stating that had this evidence been disclosed at the time, it would have made a difference to the outcome of Long's trial. We appealed that decision by the district court to a panel of the Fourth Circuit. The three-judge panel split 2-1, and the majority of the panel ruled in favor of the state, upheld the decision of the district court, and deemed that it was immaterial. So the summary judgment grant uh, was upheld by that panel. We, there was a dissent, Judge Thacker of the Fourth Circuit, tended to dissent, a dissent, and we then appealed or filed a petition for a rehearing in bonk, meaning a petition for the full Fourth Circuit to consider Mr. Long's case. And last Monday, a majority of the Fourth Circuit's active judges, which is 15 judges, um, a majority of the active judges on the Fourth Circuit agreed to rehear Long's case. So at some point in time in the future, we will have an opportunity to argue that Mr. Long is entitled to release on the basis of the evidence that was withheld from him to the full court. And that'll be an argument where all of the 15 active judges of the Fourth Circuit will be present and involved in the deliberations and decisions. So what is that key evidence? Yeah, so at the time that law enforcement was investigating the assault on Miss Boss, they collected numerous items of physical evidence from the scene. They collected suspect hair, um, hair that was around the spot where she was attacked, um, and they believed might be linked to the perpetrator. They collected fingerprints, as is typical during the processing of a crime scene. They collected her clothing. They collected biological samples of semen that was uncovered at the hospital. So they collected all this physical evidence from the scene. And then when Long was picked up two weeks later, after she identified him, they collected items of evidence from Long, including um, hairs that they plucked from Long himself that could be compared to the suspect hair collected from the scene. They collected items of clothing of Long. Um, so they collected evidence from Long as well as the crime scene. And they sent that evidence off to our State Bureau of Investigations lab with the specific ask of the lab to determine whether any of the evidence from the crime scene could be linked to Long. Uh, several pieces of evidence were tested, reports were written. They were then returned to the law enforcement agency. And long story short, out of all the pieces of evidence they collected, none of it matched Long. There's not a single fingerprint that Max Long, the suspect's hair that they believe was probative of who the perpetrator was, didn't match the hair standards that they collected from Long. They collected matches from Long's vehicle um, that were supposed to be uh, compared to matches that were found at the scene. Those did not match. So nothing that was collected um, matched in any way too long, and that was all concealed from him at the time he was tried. So let me ask you a stupid question, because the 
in general, when I read through these wrongful conviction cases and how difficult it is to get a court to buy into it, it's a matter of huge frustration, and I'm sure it's probably the same for you. Um, how is it that a court can look at that amount of evidence, the physical evidence that doesn't match him, and say that that would not impact a jury at trial? Extremely frustrating, David, um, is, a, is a good way to describe it. Um, there's two things that work here. One is this uh, real reluctance from the criminal justice system generally to look backwards at cases and find any error. Um, some of the most significant wrongful conviction cases that more or less everybody nationally would agree was a wrongful conviction and looking back after the individuals were exonerated through DNA or whatever means, everybody realizes, oh yeah, that was is that that was um, an injustice and material to the outcome where there are court of appeals decisions. I mean, Brandon Garrett, who's a professor at um, Duke Law School, one of my colleagues has wrote in the book, has wrote the book Convicting the Innocent. And in there, he discusses how, you know, all these court of appeals find no errors, even when materials withheld, et cetera. And it was only after DNA evidence was disclosed that how important the materials that were not disclosed became to the case. So there's this real reluctance to look backwards and find errors in cases. And given that, courts often find whatever reason they can to, I guess, ignore the importance of the evidence that was withheld. And one of the refrains we've heard a lot in the Ronnie Long case was the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, meaning maybe the law enforcement investigators just didn't collect the right pieces of evidence or none of this is conclusive that Long wasn't there because maybe he was just stealth enough to not leave behind any evidence of his presence being there. Um, so this absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So that's become sort of the refrain in the Long case as the justification for um, for, for concluding that this evidence is immaterial. The problem with that is, of course, law enforcement needs to be probative. There's no other physical evidence in the case. All we have is this identification and this evidence demonstrating that law enforcement investigation couldn't make any connection between Long and the crime scene would have been significant to a jury's assessment of the quality of the investigation the quality of the identification of Long, and a jury very well could have heard that evidence and concluded that, of course, um, they haven't proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Long is guilty. More importantly in the Long case is not only was all this evidence collected, tested, failed to reveal Long was present at the scene, additionally, law enforcement officers actively took the stand and lied about the evidence to conceal the results. And if the officers believe that the absence of evidence wasn't evidence of absence, they wouldn't have been up there lying to conceal the evidence from Long. That, to me, points to two things. One, 
They knew it was a really weak case against Long to begin with. They had doubts whether or not Long was in fact the actual perpetrator. And to overcome those doubts and the weakness of the case, they knew that they had to conceal this material to keep it from the jury to secure the conviction. So I have to say, and and understand this, you know, I I do I do a lot of this stuff, you know, and I look at cases and, you know, I get a lot of cases that people push forward and people say, oh, you know, so-and-so is wrongly convicted. Um, and we always view that with a little bit of skepticism because I think you have to. Um, this seems like a no-brainer to me. Um, you have a bad identification or at least a suspect identification. You you don't have any physical evidence. Uh, you have law enforcement lying on the stand. Uh, is there anything at this point to hang your hat on for a conviction in this case? No, there's nothing to hang their hat on for a conviction in this case. And, and this is one of the most frustrating things um, with respect to this work that I have, the sort of spurious arguments by the um, actors on behalf of the state to try and uphold the conviction that when you look at um you know, objectively, it's very clear that there's nothing supporting the guilt of Ronnie Long. Uh, you know, we face arguments in briefs about um, his mother was likely lying when she took the stand and talked about the alibi because she didn't necessarily know exactly when he had bought his most recent shoes. So his alibi shouldn't be deemed to have any credibility because the mom wasn't sure when it was that he had bought his most recent pair of shoes. I mean, this is the type of argument that we have to face. But when law enforcement takes the stand and testifies affirmatively about not doing any additional testing, when we know that they in fact had, the state argues that he was likely mistaken or misremembered at the time of the testimony. So the state elevates any sort of inconsistency that they can find on behalf of the defense is this concerted effort to um, conceal the guilt of the defendant and get him off on a crime he surely committed. Um, however, anything that's done on behalf of law enforcement is this mistake, misremembered. Um, so it's just this unfair way in which the, um, which the state and even courts, because they buy into these arguments, are willing to look at the actions of law enforcement vis-a-vis everything else that occurs in the case. Um, it's really, it's really discouraging when you do this work day in and day out to hear these arguments and to think somebody on behalf of the people of the state of North Carolina is peddling these arguments to a court that may agree with them that are completely baseless. And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but we see this here in California as well. And, and we see it happening today, not just in 1976. Um, so yeah. I, I want to get into this because I think it's really important to understand what went wrong in this case. How was this guy wrongly convicted? Well, I was going to say among all the things that we've discussed, the one thing we haven't discussed is perhaps the most egregious thing that occurred in the case, despite lies by 
the investigating officers, the concealment of evidence. Ronnie was tried in a part of the state that had a lot of um, racial division and tension. And he was tried by an all-white jury because prior to the jury summonses being issued, the jury list was brought to law enforcement officers, perhaps the very same law enforcement officers involved in the investigation. They were given a pen and allowed to go through the list, strike any name that they wanted with zero accountability. And then those individuals were removed from the jury list before summonses were sent for potential jurors to appear in court. Their testimony from Long's trial, because Long's defense at the time um, was aware up to speed on this practice in the county, their testimony from the jury commission chairperson, as well as the sheriff, discussing the practice. Uh, the jury commission chairperson said that he brought the master list of jurors to the sheriff of Cabarrus County, where Long was convicted, as well as to the chief of police, and that the chief of police and some of his deputies sat around striking people from the master jury rolls. The court ordered that the jury chairperson go and find the list so it could be viewed to determine just who was struck and whether or not the individuals were struck for um, some invalid reason, such as race, yet conveniently, he had said that he had lost the list, so it's never been determined who those people were who were removed from the jury list. And what ultimately ended up happening is at the time Ronnie was tried, um, I believe of the jurors that arrived in the courthouse after summonses went out, Four of them were African-American. All were struck, and Long was left being tried by an all-white jury. So I'll ask the obvious question. Um, how come some appellate court over the last 44 years has not looked at that and said, whoa, you can't do that? Yeah. Um, so I have to say, with regard to the present litigation, when we came into the case, we came into the case after it had already been litigated through the state court. So as you're likely aware, and probably many of your listeners, that you are required to bring these state conviction, the constitutional error in state convictions through the state court system before you can then file a habeas petition in federal court. So we came into the case after it had been litigated through the state court system. And the litigation, as we found it, had only been focused on the non-disclosure of evidence and whether or not that non-disclosure made a difference to the outcome of Long's trial or whether it undermined the outcome of Long's trial. So we haven't, that hasn't been an explicit part of the federal case because, um, you know, we're limited to what's already been heard by the state court. So that's one reason that that hasn't been a significant issue in the present litigation. That said, Long himself tried to raise that issue. Um, he filed a motion back in um, the late 1980s in state court, raising the issue with regards to his jury. Um, there was some testimony at the time um, where the sheriff testified that the reasons he struck people would have all been permissible reasons under the statute. And, you know, absent some evidence otherwise, 
Um, Long was denied release when he tried to raise this back in 1988. Um, he brought it in federal, a federal habeas petition where he represented himself. Um, that actually created some procedural barriers to our bringing the petition that we brought on his behalf in federal court. Um, and he was pro se in those proceedings in the federal district court, um, dismissed his pro se habeas petition on the basis of the composition of his jury. Um, of course, today we look at something of that nature in a lens, I believe, that's different than it was being viewed back in 1988 and 89. And it strikes anybody hearing today that that was the practice and what occurred at Long's trial as extremely unfair. Basis alone to overturn his conviction um, and, and, and highly suspicious given the uh, where our country was, especially this part of North Carolina was with regards to its racial division back in 1976. And just to highlight for your sort of national audience about where North Carolina was in 1976, of course, the Jim Crow South um, had been disassembled by Supreme Court um, case law, and the South was in this transition period. And there was a great deal of racial tension. In the early 70s, the Ku Klux Klan sort of had a revival, and a large part of that was centered in North Carolina. Um, in 1979, the Greensboro Massacre um, occurred in Greensboro, North Carolina, where members of the Klan um, essentially killed members or African-American members of the United Communist Party. And um, despite that, the evidence being, um, being on video, they were acquitted during the course of a trial where there was an all-white jury. So the period of time when this occurred um, is significant to me, should be significant to anybody looking back, yet when it was heard in 1988, the jury-based claim, I don't think that significant um, carried as much importance, importance in the South at that time when that was being raised. I, I can see that. Um, so... Let me ask you this question. Um, does ineffective assistance of counsel come into play in this case? It doesn't at the time, at, at the present time. Um, the litigation that we have been focusing on, as I said, all is centered around the non-disclosure of the evidence. And that's how um, we took the case when it came to the Duke Law Clinic. Uh, just for your listeners, I'm an attorney um, the, that works out of Duke University's wrongful conviction clinic with students um, operating as um, certified law student attorneys helping me to litigate cases. Um, we have three faculty members that all play a role in the litigation of these post-conviction cases. We all supervise different cases and Long is one that I happen to be the supervisor of. Um, we were approached by Ashley, who's appeared on your show. Um, 2015, I believe, was the year that we were approached, and Ashley came to us because she had been told that the legal options for Ronnie had ran out, that it would be very difficult to get it heard um, 
in court again. And we began the process of reviewing the materials that were provided to us in the case. And like you, there was the reaction of, oh my gosh, how did this happen? How could this individual be incarcerated for what at that time was 39 going on 40 years? And what is now, as of May this year, will have been 44 years of incarceration. We began looking at the case and we couldn't believe that he was still incarcerated. We thought the error was substantial and that it needed to be heard. And we set out to try and bring his claims back in federal court. Um, the first step was we had to take what the state court did and present it to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. Because it was his second, I had mentioned earlier that there had been procedural hurdles created by his own pro se habeas petition that he filed uh, back in 1989. So because he had filed that, our petition was deemed a successive petition, and we're not allowed to bring that without permission from the appellate court. So the first thing we had to do is ask the Fourth Circuit for permission to file a successive habeas petition. And we put together the petition itself because it has to be submitted to the Fourth Circuit for their review, as well as the motion for the court to grant us the permission. And we were fortunate enough that they allowed the successive habeas petition and our litigation is sort of taken off from there. But it's all centered on what was heard by the state court before the case came to us. So let me ask this because, you know, I think... I think people's reaction to this case is, is one of disbelief that the process is so stacked against somebody when it looks like, at least on the surface, and you know, granted we're not talking to the state here, um, that, that this is pretty egregious. Um, do you have a sense at this point as to what your chances are of success even? It's really difficult, um, hopeful. If you read the dissenting opinion by Judge Thacker, we believe that she gets it absolutely right in her description of this case. If the full court agrees, then that'll give us an opportunity to go into the district court and finally litigate these issues, hopefully um, to secure relief for Mr. Long. Of course, as you pointed out, it's incredibly difficult to prevail, even in a case that appears this egregious. Uh, I know you say that you're talking, you're not talking to the state, but I will say much of the, um, the concealment of evidence, the nature of how things went down with the jury, many of these facts are, are not disputed. It's just the impact of these facts on the outcome of Long's trial that is, um, that, that, that they dispute in a way. So, so, I mean, it's very egregious what occurred to Long. The state has nothing to counter um, the facts about what occurred, and they just argue, you know, that the victim's eyewitness identification overcomes everything that we can say about um, the nature of the investigation, uh, the nature of the jury, and everything else related to the case. Um, I'm optimistic in front of the full fourth circuit. I believe this is a very uh, egregious case and the full court taking a look at the facts. I would like to believe that they're going to agree with us on that point. 
And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up this point. You know, um, Ronnie was, what, 18 when, when this all went down? Yeah, I, I, I believe he was 19. I could be mistaken, but I believe it was 19. Yeah, in that ballpark anyway. And, and yeah. you know, we're talking about something that happened in 1976. So I was three years old at that time. I'm now in my late forties. Yeah. Um, you I, know, I, I wasn't born at that time. Yes, so. uh, I, I'm just trying to put this into perspective, and 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 I think you know, uh, you guys and rightly so are focused on innocence, uh, but you know, it just seems like the sentence is disproportionate at this point. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there there was no death in this case. Um, of course, sexual assault is a um, horrific crime, and, and victims of sexual assault, I know, go through so much trauma. However, oftentimes individuals who commit sexual assault serve substantially lesser sentences than what will be 44 years this May. Um, sometimes they, they, they only serve a few months, yet here we are with Ronnie in, in, a, in a weak case where where where, where Ronnie is, is innocent of these charges, but even if you don't believe he's innocent, it's an extremely weak case to begin with if you um, look at it objectively. And here we are, 44 years later, trying to get him out of prison. It speaks to it speaks to you know our carceral state and the fact that we're willing to incarcerate people for this period of time, even in a case that's as questionable as this. It's disproportionate. It's infuriating to me. Um, I, I don't know. We haven't talked about, um, you know, most recently after the Fourth Circuit agreed to hear the case, we immediately asked the governor to commute the active portion of long sentence. Um, part of our request included that at this point in time, there's really no penological purpose for keeping long incarcerated. Um, he's 64, turning 65. Uh, he has some medical conditions uh, that are better situated to be dealt with outside of the penal system. And our view is that the governor of North Carolina, recognizing the disproportionate nature of the time he's already served, even if he is not inclined to grant a pardon of innocence, which would be the governor's mechanism of demonstrating or, or, or putting the government's seal of approval on our innocence claims, he doesn't have to go that far. He has the ability to commute the active portion of Long's sentence, which would give Long the opportunity to um, live with his wife, Ashley. We could proceed to try and prove his innocence. And if we ultimately fail, well, that's a product of the decision of the court. The conviction still exists. Long's just free from this, um, from from this disproportionate, unnecessary incarceration that he's being subject to currently by the state of North Carolina. Well, we're just about out of time. Was there anything else that you wanted to raise? I don't think there's there's anything else specifically. Um, you know, I'm grateful for all the attention that Ronnie's case has received throughout the country. Um, the notes that I get from supporters is something that I always appreciate. I know Ashley appreciates. And Ronnie receives all sorts of mail all the time from all over the country. 
And I know that that's a source of hope for him. So if anybody out there is inclined to begin writing to Ronnie, he tries to respond personally to each letter he's received. Uh, he appreciates it. It gives him hope. Um, and we're all grateful for your concern. Well, thank you so much for being on our show and uh, filling in some of the gaps here. And uh, I mean, this is, I don't know what else to say other than this is an injustice. It, it is an injustice. It's an injustice that um, really needs to come to an end sooner rather than later. And I hope we can achieve that result for Ronnie um, expeditiously and without too much more waiting. It, you know, waiting's a beast. And it's been really difficult and frustrating knowing that he's wrongly incarcerated and that we are oftentimes left waiting um, without getting answers from court. So we look forward to the, the argument in front of the full force circuit and hope that it occurs um, sooner rather than later. We, we, of course, don't have a date at this time. Yes, and, and that's a, another issue for a different show. But... Uh... <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you, David. I appreciate you having me. Have a good one. This has been Everyday Injustice. We were talking with Jamie Lau from the Duke Wrongful Convictions Clinic in North Carolina. You know, it's really interesting. I talk to a lot of people. I'm involved in a lot of wrongful conviction cases. And everyone that I talk to, everyone, they, they say, wow, this is just a huge injustice. This is the worst injustice I've ever seen. And I never say that because every time I think that, I see something worse. And this is as bad as anyone I've ever seen. This guy has been in prison for coming on 44 years. He really shouldn't have been in prison for 44 years for this crime to begin with. But the weakness of the case, the problems with the case, the problem of eyewitness identification, the problem of them rigging the jury, the problem of them lying on the stand, the problem of them withholding evidence. This is overwhelming. There is no reason that this guy should be in prison. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.